To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Does God really have a son? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. The Bible claims that Yeshua is the Son of God. But how can the eternal creator of the universe have a son? Did he mix with humanity to father biological offspring? Or maybe replicate his essence through some kind of cosmic reproduction? The reality and sense in which the God of Israel can have a son, and for that son to be Yeshua, Jesus, is nothing like anything any mere mortal could conceive. And though it defies comprehension, it was through this embodiment of himself that God decided from the beginning he would not only restore Israel, but bring salvation to the world. Today, I want to talk to you about how the Hebrew scriptures point to Yeshua as the Son of God, how the New Covenant scriptures expound on that view, and the meaning that's wrapped up in this most important title of the Messiah. You ready? Here we go. So, the idea of a son immediately conjures up thoughts of procreation. But the suggestion that a holy God would procreate in the same or similar way that we reproduce and have children is not only inconceivable, but offensive. That's the stuff of Greek myths and pagan religions, and nothing in the scriptures suggests this concerning Yeshua or anyone else, despite any cynical implication to the contrary. Nevertheless, we find clear and unambiguous statements in the Hebrew scriptures that God does indeed have a son. Perhaps the most explicit of these is found in Exodus chapter 4, where Moses is being instructed by God what to say to Pharaoh upon returning to Egypt. And God tells Moses in verses 22 and 23, And you must say to Pharaoh, This is what Adonai, the Lord, has said. My son, my firstborn, is Israel. And I say to you, Send out my son, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to send him out, look, I will be killing your son, your firstborn. So according to Torah, God does indeed have a son, and that son is Israel, the people of Israel. And Israel is not only God's son, but he called them his firstborn. So beside the fact that everyone on earth is descended from Adam, who was directly created by God, in what sense then is Israel God's son? The answer, I think, is in Adonai's threat to Pharaoh, which he made good on, when he tells him that he'll kill Pharaoh's firstborn if he will not let God's firstborn son, Israel, go. The firstborn son is unique among all children. He's the direct heir of the father. He's specially treasured and forever irreplaceable in the father's heart and mind. By likening Israel to Pharaoh's son, God is expressing his singular love and protection for Israel but also an expectation for the future that only the firstborn of a father can fulfill. In the same way that a threat to Pharaoh's son is a threat to his future kingdom, a threat to God's son is an incitement against God's kingdom. And as background for all this, in Genesis, God says to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation. And according to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, blessed in you will be all the families of the ground of the earth. 
And God renews this promise of a nation with Isaac and Jacob, which is exactly what he was about to bring forth through his dealings with Pharaoh. So this promise to create a numerous people from the descendants of the patriarchs that would somehow bless all the families of the earth also speaks to the concept of God as father and Israel as son. So Israel's God's son in the sense that he has a special love for Israel as a father to his firstborn son. God's expectations for Israel as the inheritors of his promise is that they will carry on in his name, that as they act according to his teachings, his hope for their future and that of all his children would be fulfilled. In addition to God calling Israel his son, he also referred to King David the same way. In Psalm chapter 2, David, speaking in the third person, tells in verse 2 of the kings of the earth coming against Adonai and his anointed. The Hebrew here is Mashiach, Messiah, whom God calls in verse 6 his king on Zion. And in verse 7, David, now speaking in first person, says of himself, I will declare concerning the decree, Adonai, the Lord, has said to me, you are my son, today I have brought you forth. So the Hebrew here for brought you forth is the same word that's normally used to refer to childbirth. But while a woman brings forth a child through the act of childbearing, a father brings forth through the act of fathering the child. Here it means bring forth in a metaphorical sense, which makes sense since God is calling David his son. He's bringing David into a season of victory over the nations that are set against him. But we should also pay attention to this fantastic grouping of terms that we find in this psalm. Son, King, and Messiah. According to Psalm 2, David is not only God's son, but an anointed king, a messianic king. Now, this isn't unusual since each king would be anointed with oil upon his installation and in that sense be like a messiah. But it also speaks to the unbroken expectations for the one who would be Israel's ultimate messiah, the messiah. That messiah would also be the king of Israel and as the son of David, the greatest of David's line, the son of God. And we see God further setting the stage for this as he makes his covenant with David promising the establishment of David's line of kings forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, God says to David, I will raise up your seed after you, and I will establish your kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be to me for a son. And your house and your kingdom will be made steadfast before your face forever. Your throne will be being established forever. So God is promising David that his line will reign as king forever, and it will first be extended through his son Solomon, who would build a house for God, the temple. And in making this promise to David, God reiterates and establishes with David's line their sonship. When he says specifically of Solomon, I will be a father to him, and he will be to me for a son. And yet, the line of kings would eventually be cut off, or so it seemed, as Israel and Judah were successively conquered by the nations. But what would this mean for Israel and God's promise of David's eternal kingdom? What would it mean for the expectation of God's son? We'll find out. So now we see from the Hebrew Scriptures 
that there's nothing bizarre or outrageous about God having a son. It doesn't imply or necessitate any kind of natural childbirth or otherworldly conception. It speaks only to the characteristics of a special relationship with God. Israel's sonship is characterized by being called God's firstborn and heir of his promises and purposes. Israel was to be God's instrument for blessing all the nations. And God also calls David and David's sons his sons, bringing forth a line of kings that he promised would reign in Israel forever. Israel and David, then, are God's sons in the sense that he's the progenitor of a people through whom he would disseminate and propagate his message and glory to the world. And Paul encapsulates this sonship brilliantly in Acts chapter 13, where he declares to his Jewish listeners how in Yeshua's resurrection from the dead and the salvation that comes with it, Yeshua brings the promise of Israel and the kingship of the messianic line of David to their culmination. In verses 32 and 33, he says, And we proclaim good news to you, that the promise made to the fathers, this God has completed to us, their children, in full, having raised up Yeshua, as also it has been written in the second melody, the second psalm, you are my son, today I have brought you forth. Paul acknowledges then, not only that Yeshua's resurrection fulfills God's promise to the people of Israel and puts him squarely in the kingly line of David's eternal throne, but that Yeshua is the culmination of Israel's sonship with God. By attributing what God said to David as being spoken of Yeshua, Paul is saying that David was a prototype or pattern for Israel's Messiah and that David's kingship is fulfilled in Yeshua. While Yeshua wasn't a military leader like David, and some in Israel did have an expectation that he would be, the scriptures don't necessarily attribute David's messianic character to his success on the battlefield, but rather to his quintessential character as a man of God. Quoting 1 Samuel 13, Paul says in Acts 13, verses 22 through 23, that God raised up to Israel David for a king, to whom also he said, I found David a man according to my heart, who will do all my will. Of this one seed, God, according to his promise, brought to Israel a savior, Yeshua. So it was because of this pattern, not a military one, that God established David as a type of Messiah. And there's actually more, which we'll see in a minute. So back to Paul. What he's saying is that Yeshua is the heir to David's throne that through Yeshua's resurrection as God's son, he restores and continues God's promised kingdom forever. With David's line broken, only through its restoration by the Messiah, the son of David, could God's promise of an everlasting throne be fulfilled. This attribution to Yeshua from David is actually repeated twice more in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, speaking of Yeshua's inheritance as God's son, the writer says of him, For to which of the messengers, the angels, did God ever say, You are my son, today I have brought you forth. And again, I will be to him for a father, and he will be to me for a son. Remember that one? So again, the writer's further reinforcing Yeshua's connection to David as king by reciting Psalm 2, but also by repeating what God said of Solomon in 2 Samuel 7, extending the covenant with David throughout his line, a line that reaches its goal 
in Yeshua, the eternal King of Israel. And secondly, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, speaking of Israel's high priest and how he takes no glory for himself in offering the sacrifices for sin, the writer also says, So also the Messiah did not glorify himself to become Kohen Gadol, high priest, but rather he who spoke to him, You are my son, today I have brought you forth. As also in another passage he says, You are a Kohen, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the writer again reiterates God's words to David from Psalm 2, attributing David's messianic kingly sonship to Yeshua. But look at this new connection that the writer's making. He's also quoting Psalm 110, where he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 was also written by David. And in verse 4, David says that God calls him a priest forever. Even though David didn't descend from the priestly tribe, God nevertheless also accepted him as a priest, meaning that David had access to God and could approach him in the same way as the descendants of Levi. Levi. The writer of Hebrews, then, is also drawing this priestly equivalence between David and Yeshua. Just as in David, the pattern of an eternal priest is established, so it is fulfilled in Yeshua. And beside Israel's king also being messianic, guess what the priest is also called? Kohen HaMashiach, the anointed priest, the messianic priest. So, as God's son, David was his messianic priestly king. And that sonship is brought to its fullness in Israel's eternal priestly king, the Messiah, Yeshua. And these attributes of the Son of God were understood by Yeshua's contemporaries. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 49, when Nathanael, who the scriptures describe as a true Israelite, when he meets Yeshua for the first time, he exclaims, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In John chapter 11, verse 27, Jewish Martha, whose brother had just died, confessed to Yeshua, Yes, Master, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. In Luke 22, when Yeshua appeared before the Jewish council of the Sanhedrin, while they were trying to find a crime that would warrant handing him over to the Romans, they asked him in verse 67, If you are the Messiah, tell us. And then in verse 70, Are you then the Son of God? And lastly, in Mark chapter 15, verse 32, while Yeshua was being executed, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him, calling him sarcastically yet truthfully, the Messiah, the King of Israel. So in Yeshua's day, the Jewish people's understanding of their Messiah would not only be that he would restore the true kingship of Israel after the line of David, but some understood he would also be the Son of God. While the fullness of what it would mean for the Messiah to be God's Son may not have been entirely understood before God raised Yeshua from the dead in victory over sin and death, it was nonetheless known in first century Jewish society that the Messiah would sit on the throne of God's Son. But someone being called God's Son is not quite the same as someone being the Son of God. Yeshua embodies God's call to sonship, both for Israel and the Davidic line. So he's not only Israel's messianic priestly king, but also the means of blessing all the families of the earth through his sacrifice, atonement, and offer of salvation 
and eternal life. But for that, Yeshua needed to further narrow the definition of the Son of God. He had to be something more, something that many of the people of Israel weren't yet ready to receive. Yeshua would find himself in conflict and ultimately on the execution stake because the people perceived his claim as Son of God and oneness with him as a claim of equality with God. But even though, as Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-7 through seven point out, he didn't hold on to that equality but emptied himself, he also didn't deny what it meant and the truth of being God's exact imprint. In one such altercation recorded in John chapter 10, Yeshua had made the open-air statement, I and the Father are one, prompting the Jews to try to kill him because they knew what he meant. But as they were about to stone him, Yeshua answered them, beginning in verse 32, I showed you many good acts from the Father. Because of which of those acts do you stone me? The Jews answered him, We do not stone you for a good act, but for evil speaking, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the people were incensed that Yeshua, who was just as human as they were, was claiming to be God. Though his birth had been a miraculous sign, his mother having never before been with a man, he was nevertheless thoroughly human, with a human ancestry just like we have, tempted in all things likewise as we are, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and ultimately able to be killed just like we can. Though he never explicitly spoke the words, I am God, when he said that he and the Father were one and that he was the Son of God, that was more than enough. And because the people considered that blasphemy, they sought to kill him. But Yeshua stood his ground and made his case from the scriptures by quoting Psalm chapter 82, verse 6, which is about the people of Israel. Continuing in John chapter 10, verse 34, Yeshua answered them, Is it not having been written, I said, you are gods? And the rest of the quote that John doesn't record says, And sons of the Most High. In the face of their contempt for him, Yeshua states this biblical fact, that the scriptures call the people not just sons of the Most High, but gods. Granted, he's not ascribing deity to the people, but he's laying the groundwork from God's word concerning whether or not his claim to be the Son of God is valid. And he makes that argument in the following verses, beginning in verse 35. Yeshua continues, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture is not able to be broken, how do you say of him whom the Father set apart and sent to the world, you speak evil? Because I said, I am the Son of God? So the people wanted to stone Yeshua because they believed what he was saying was blasphemous, that a man can't claim equality with God. But by citing this verse from the Psalms, and with the argument he reasons from it, Yeshua is showing the people its natural progression, fulfilled in him. If the people are called gods and sons of the Most High, then how much more can the one whom the Father set apart and sent to save the world be called the Son of God? And he didn't make any such claim, not having had the actions to back it up. He'd been doing the Father's work among the people, which he cited as evidence that the Father was in him and he was in the Father. So a man claiming equality with God is an evil speaker and a blasphemer, but only if 
it isn't true. Yeshua was a man just as they were, and yet somehow more. Now, there's no denying that the way Yeshua came into the world wasn't normal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. John chapter 1, verse 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we looked upon his glory, glory as of the one and only of a Father. John chapter 1, verse 14. Yeshua is the Word who was with God and was God in the beginning. That in and of itself is unfathomable. But then somehow, through the Holy Spirit, that Word of God became a human being. Yeshua's mother, Miriam, though a virgin, was found to have conceived from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon her, and the power of the highest overshadowed her. And though we have no idea what that means, with whatever it entailed, it was holy, and it was done to fulfill that which was spoken by Adonai through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Look, the virgin will conceive, and she will bring forth a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means, being interpreted, with us he is God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. He wasn't a madman claiming to be God, or a God posing as a man, or an abomination half-breed God-man in some irreconcilable commingling of flesh and spirit. But somehow, some way, in the man Yeshua, having come from a woman, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And yet, Yeshua was not the Son of God simply because of the miraculous manner of his birth and his mysterious makeup as both fully God and fully man. He was also the Son of God because of his purpose, his calling, his character, and his relationship with the Father. And that's why he would be great and he would be called Son of the Highest. And Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, will give him the throne of David his father, and he will reign over the house of Yaakov, Jacob, to the ages, and of his reign there will be no end. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. The Messiah Yeshua came to be the embodiment of his Jewish people. Like Israel, Yeshua is God's completely irreplaceable, entirely unique, one and only Son. God sent Yeshua as a Savior according to the heart of David, so that through him all Israel and the whole world might be saved. He came to incite the dissemination and propagation of God's eternal message and glory, and bring victory over sin and death once for all and forever. As the Son of God, Yeshua was specially anointed by the Holy Spirit and glorified through the glory of the Father. He cast out unclean spirits and demons, and he literally walked on water. He's not just the eternal king of Israel, but the king of all kings and our great high priest forever. He came to break up the actions of the accuser by loving us and living in us and giving himself up for us. Does God really have a son? Absolutely he does. And whoever professes that Yeshua is the Son of God. God remains in him, and he in God. 
Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting aright, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.